0: Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast.
1: I got attached to the idea of being a really important lawyer. I thought I was such a really important lawyer. And I was really into that. I think I got a lot of self-esteem from that. And it was, it was hard for me to leave because I, you know, I didn't have a plan. And, and like, you know, in my family, the worst thing you could ever do is leave a job without have something else lined up.
0: That was Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, the author of the book, A Kind of Freedom. It was a debut novel that went on to become a 2017 National Book Award nominee, a New York Times Notable Book of 2017, and a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. I read the book, A Kind of Freedom, in the fall of 2017, shortly after it came out. About the book, the New York Times says This luminous and assured first novel shines an unflinching, compassionate light on three generations of a black family in New Orleans, emphasizing endurance more than damage. Today, I get to talk to Margaret, the author, about the process first of becoming a writer after leaving a prestigious law practice. And then about writing the book. Technically, this is her second book, but her first novel, she shopped around for a year and a half, and her agent couldn't sell it. They couldn't find a good fit for it. Also, she is the mother of three children. At the time of this recording, she has twins that are four years old and a 14-month-old. We talk about the journey of bringing this book to life. She wrote the book with 15 hours a week of childcare while the mother of young twins. After the interview, I end up asking Margaret for all of her book and reading recommendations, and she gives me like 20 books that she's reading and loves. If you want those recommendations which aren't included in the interview, go over to startuppregnant.com for the show notes, and there's extra quotes and excerpts not featured in this interview. But first, take a listen to this story. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. There is so much to learn when it comes to pregnancy and parenting. You all know that I'm a huge fan of learning from experts and gathering your tribe of people to learn from. So one of the ones I highly recommend is called Alavita Nutrition. They are the sponsor of this episode, and they are a tremendous resource when it comes to food and health and wellness. Anna and Megan started the company, and they are registered dietitians and entrepreneurs, and they want to make eating good food and understanding nutrition easier for busy moms. I have been stalking their blog and reading all of the recipes, and now it makes a lot more sense why I crave a bazillion eggs and green juice during my pregnancy, because I understand the science behind it. If you want to learn more about nutrition and how to take care of your body before you're pregnant and while you're growing a baby and afterwards, go check them out at Alavida Nutrition. Also, for Startup Pregnant listeners, if you use the code Startup Pregnant, you get 20% off of their self-paced programs or their nutrition consultations. I have all the links in the show notes so you can check them out. And thank you, Alavida Nutrition, for being the sponsor of this episode. Right, everyone. I am so excited to have Margaret Wilkerson Sexton join us on the show today. Margaret, thank you for taking the time and joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited.
0: I am too. When I got to connect with you, I was thrilled. I read your book last fall, fall of 2017. And I want to get into it. But before I do, I would love to ask you one of my favorite questions, which is, Can you tell me about your morning? What time did you wake up and what do you do in Uh, the morning?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I have three kids and the oldest ones are twins and they normally go to school. They're supposed to be there between 8.30 and 9. And so we usually get there about 9. Normally, my morning is just busy getting them together for school and getting the baby ready to go with us to take him. But actually, they're out of school this summer. And so it's just been really relaxing. I mean, it's been amazing just to set aside a few months where we don't have to be anywhere on a schedule. So it's not that they sleep in, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so we still wake up at like seven, six thirty, seven. But you know, we don't have to have that push to get ready and go somewhere. This morning we had one obligation at ten thirty and it was music class. So it's a very, very soft obligation. We woke up, we have a leisurely breakfast. Oh, they played, their new thing is they have dinner parties in the living room. So they like put together a dinner party while I was cleaning up and getting miles together, the baby. And then we went to music class. And if anybody's familiar with music class, it's so silly. It's for the children. But my teacher always says it's actually for the adults. And, you know, we sing silly songs. and It's very humbling. Yeah. And then we came back home.
0: So how old are your kiddos, your twins and then your baby?
1: The twins are four and the baby is 14 months today.
0: Oh, still fresh. (laughs) So new. (laughs) So tell us about your parenting journey. Have you always known that you've wanted to be a parent? And then how was the process of becoming a parent for you?
1: Yeah, I've always known I wanted to be a mom. I mean,
0: I was the child
1: who had 20 dolls and I had names for all of them and they were all my kids. And I would tell people, you know, I have 20 children. And it's funny because my daughter does the exact same thing right now. You know, it's not anything that I've, Trained her to do even implicitly. She just has that instinct. She's always talking about having kids. But anyway, I was the same way. I feel like my process was a little bit, it was easy, you know, in some ways, in many ways, especially compared to other women I know. And I feel really grateful for that. I met my husband in college and we got married like nine years after we met. And then a year later, we had the twins. It was very standard. And I feel grateful that I didn't have to, you know, struggle around any of those areas. Now having twins be the first pregnancy, that's a challenge. I mean, you know, we didn't expect to have twins. It was completely surprising and it was a challenge for sure. I didn't realize how challenging it was in some ways because I didn't have a frame of reference. They were my first kids, but just the level of, of stress that would go into even like going to the grocery store, just everyday activities. It was a challenge. We enjoyed it. So much that it didn't feel burdensome, but it was a lot. And then adding another child, actually, the funny thing is adding Miles, the third child, that has really been an adjustment more than the twins. I think the twins, because we were so excited and it was our first time and that felt a little bit easier, but having three now, it feels hard. Of course, you know, you love it so much and it's truly the most joyful thing, but it's definitely challenging. It's definitely challenging to have very limited personal space and time as an introvert and to just constantly be on and to just constantly be doing for somebody else. It's rewarding, of course, but it's challenging. It's relentless. Yeah, it is. is, yeah. isn't it? Yeah.
0: What in particular about the transition from the first kids? I know you had two to start, but how was adding the younger sibling surprising or different than you expected?
1: It surprised me. What an adjustment it continues to be. I think part of it is that he doesn't sleep well. I think about it a lot because I felt like I handled twins very gracefully and I felt graceful a lot of the time too, you know? And then with the third child, I just feel, even since the pregnancy, because I didn't sleep well when I was pregnant, I think it's the sleep. I think it's because I'm often so sleep deprived. He still wakes up. He's 14 months. He still wakes up multiple times a night. I think that's part of it is that I'm just tired. My twins now are almost five. They're very self-sufficient. You know, they play with each other so well. It's not like it's the actual demands of the day. I think it's that I'm tired.
0: I mean, that makes so much sense. And it jives with everything I've heard from so many different women about it takes at least 12 months to maybe even sort of kind of feel like normal again, which is why so much of the world has 12 months of postpartum leave. Um,
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I'm just going to say it again because I'm actually, I'm talking to myself here too. With the twins, we sleep train them. And of course, that's a controversial topic, but we sleep train the twins. So at four months, they were already sleeping through the night. I can't tell you, it's amazing how you would think there would be no comparison between two babies and one. It should be a lot easier with the one, right? But that sleep makes such a big difference
0: yeah. because I was
1: sleeping with the twins. I was getting eight hours of
0: sleep. So does that mean you didn't sleep train with your second child? Or is it just that you have a completely different sleeper? No,
1: I didn't sleep train with them. I'm like, I think sleep training, although it worked well, it was always really stressful because we were traveling a lot, or we would have visitors. And it just always felt so incredibly awkward. And awkward is a very benign word for what it really (laughs) is. Awkward times tip, because it's so charged, right? Like the child is going to cry, you know, and grandparents can't handle it. And it was just a very charged thing. And I just, with Miles, I thought I don't have to do it. It's just one, you know, I, I felt more like I had to do it with the twins to have some kind of normalcy, but with Miles, I thought I don't have to do it. So I'm not going to do it. So I'm just going to do it the total opposite way. Cause I always longed to be able to co-sleep. I had a lot of friends who co-slept with their kids and with the twins, it just wasn't even close to being an option for me. So I was like always longing for that. And I was, Oh, it must be so nice to co-sleep. And so we go sleep with Miles. And I mean, look, this is my opinion. Of course, everybody can do it the way that they want to. But if, let's say I had a hypothetical fourth child, I know exactly which way I would
0: go. Wait, Kim, will you tell us or are you just going to leave us? I I
1: would sleep train. I would sleep train just because, I mean, to me, it's no comparison. The sleep is very important. For me, sleep training them when they were younger, it really wasn't that hard. I can't even imagine sleep training a 14-month-old right now. it'll wear me out. I can't even, yeah.
0: I think this is so fascinating because it's so true to so many of the parenting journeys. What you do with one child is different than what happens with the next child and the next child. And you as a parent change. My friend just told me the other day the exact same thing. She's like, this is my last child, so I just want to sleep with them in my bed. And I get it. That makes so much sense, too.
1: It's so sweet. It's really sweet to get to do it. And you know, it is sweet, but then Sometimes he takes it too far. And I'm like, Miles, you know, I want to share this with you, but you're waking up three times a night in your 14
0: months. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, the things we do. Okay. So you are a mom of three little kids. And with that context, because I love hearing what time do people wake up and how many kids do you currently have? And where are you in the parenting journey? I want to ask you now about your writing career, which I know wasn't always a writing career. You have a law degree. And then I read in an interview that the company you're working for offered an incentive for associates to quit and you took it. Yeah. How did the writing path and journey start for you? And have you always known that you wanted to be a writer?
1: Yes, I did. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I remember when Time Magazine put Toni Morrison on the cover, I was in high school, and I had that cover in my room in front of my mirror. I would look at it every day. I always wanted to be a writer since before high school. So I went to college and I majored in creative writing. And I think I was still thinking maybe I would go and get an MFA. I think I let outside influences affect my decision there. I had a lot of friends who were going off to law school or medical school or something like that. My parents are lawyers, too. I think I felt nervous. I felt like, I mean, who's to say if I'm going to make it as a writer? Of course, the financial situation is so uncertain and unstable. And, and I thought, at least if I have this law degree, I can do something later. But at least I'll have stability in that sense. So I went to law school. And what I found at Berkeley, where I was, was that like 50% of the first years were saying they were going to do some sort of nonprofit work you know, you graduate and a lot of people have a lot of debt. It was pretty easy at that time to get a law firm job. This was right before the recession. A lot of people they didn't feel they had the luxury of turning down all of the money, especially since they had so much debt. For me it wasn't about the debt. Being around people who thought the same way. People would have conversations about which law firm was the best. I just thought, well, who cares, you know, but they all pay the same amount, but there was this prestige associated with it. And I think I got trapped in that world of like, you know, you want to go to one of the top firms and you want to see how far you can go there. And so that's common. That happens. Most of the time, I think it's because of debt, but a lot of time I think it happens because people just get brainwashed. And that's what happened to me. So I went to this firm. I did a summer internship there and it was really, really fun. I went back for the first year and the first day that I stepped foot in the office, I had this voice saying, this is not for you. I mean, it was like weird. It was like a clear voice that was like, you've got to get out of here. It wasn't even like a little quiet whisper. (laughs) It was like, you've got to get out of here. But I stayed there almost two years because I thought, well, what am I going to do? I mean, I got attached to the idea of being a really important lawyer. I thought I was such a really important lawyer. And I was really into that. I think I got a lot of self-esteem from that. It was hard for me to leave. You know, I didn't have a plan. And, you know, in my family, the worst thing you could ever do is leave a job without having something else lined up. That's like the worst thing you could ever do in my family. So I tried for a while. I knew I didn't like it, but I tried for a while to get another legal job, something a little bit more altruistic than a law firm. And I couldn't get one. I couldn't get another legal job. Like the recession was happening at this time. I couldn't get another legal job. Finally, I was like, I've got to do something. I can't stay here. And then this incentive came out again. It had come out in December of 2010. I didn't take it. I thought about taking it. I really wanted to take it. But I was like, mm, I've only been here a year. Like, I felt like I needed to work a little bit longer there. And then it came out again in October. And I had had this really, really charged relationship with the woman I was working for. And it was a very challenging situation. In retrospect, I'm really grateful for that because I probably would have stayed because of the money. It got to the point where I couldn't stay there and work there any longer. And in October, they offered it again, or maybe they had never stopped offering it. I don't remember. So I took it. When I look back at my life later, I think I'll say that was one of the major decisions, the most major decisions that I've ever made. It wasn't about what I was doing. It's not about like, was I going to practice law or was I going to write? It was about learning how to live in faith versus fear.
0: That's not an easy space to operate from, especially I am so grateful that you shared the pressure of success, especially in early careers, to get swept up into whatever the culture is, wherever you are. You did leave. Tell us about the decision to leave and to operate from this place of faith. And what were the next steps that you took?
1: Yeah, well, we went on this trip for like two weeks. And I was really just thinking the whole time, what am I going to do when I get back? I really had no idea. I had started a book in 2005. The year I graduated from college, I went to the Dominican Republic and I had written a book there and I never finished it. So I was thinking, well, I could go back to that book. I was seriously considering being a psychologist, either by means of being a social worker or getting a counseling master's. I really didn't know what I was going to do. So I came back from the trip and I was like, you know, let me just try the writing thing because I could just do that at home and, you know, I could just start that now. So I started that. I was writing this book about this black girl from New Orleans who goes to the Dominican Republic. She's trying to change the struggling community and she's so re-stimulated by the colorism that she witnesses in the Dominican Republic and that she was exposed to in New Orleans. She's unable to help the struggling community and she actually contributes to its harm before she leaves. I was working on this book I treated it like a job. I really treated it like a law firm job. Like, I would wake up and start, and I would work all day. I think I did that for two years before I got an agent. And in the literary world, you need to have an agent to get a publisher, usually. That was the goal. It was always the goal. It was querying agents, trying to get an agent. I mean, I can tell you, I got an agent in 2014. It was about two and a half years before I even got an agent. Those were really, really difficult years for me. Very, like, bleak years, I would say. And I sometimes feel weird saying that because I was so privileged. I had the support system to be able to sit home and write for two years. But on the other hand, my self-esteem was so caught up in achievement at that point. It was just really like how I had been raised to be working and not have anything to show for it. You know, even now, even today though, you tell people you're a writer and they think that it's a hobby of yours. Mm-hmm. And you know, so that happened all the time. I mean, all the time. It was every day. I really let it get in my head. And I was just super insecure about that, super insecure about the fact that I wasn't getting published yet, that I had left this you know, law firm job. I still had so many friends who were lawyers and I would meet up with them and they were getting promotions. Now they were sixth year associates and they were seventh year associates. And it was like, gosh, I really feel like I've just been dragging my feet for two years. Nothing has happened. So I got the agent after two and a half years, but the agent couldn't sell the book. And I was with her for another year and a half, trying to get the book sold, and she never even could sell it. And in retrospect, I'm grateful for that too, because that wasn't the book that should have gone out. But you know what happened? I finally, over the course of many, many years, like working on this core issue of value being separate from what I do, just really working on that issue, finally, I think I got to the point. I really feel like I got to the point where I would honestly say if I never get published, at least I have the joy of being able to write. And that's okay. And so I finally could get to that place. And I was like 80% in agreement with it. You know, I don't think it was like an A plus, but I think it was like a B plus or an A minus. And then finally, my sister-in-law used to work for this publishing company called Counterpoint. She wanted to take me to brunch with the people just to network. And I really didn't want to go. But I went oh, you might find this interesting. So I went to this brunch with the founder of Counterpoint and his wife, who's an editor. And I was just talking about this book that I had written. This is the Dominican Republic book and how you know the agent couldn't really sell it. And then I look up and this woman walks through the door who I used to live with in the Dominican Republic. I didn't even know she lived in the state of California. If you had asked me, I haven't <laughs> talked about her in 10 years. But if you had asked me, I would have said she probably still lives in Florida. And she walked into the restaurant. I used to live in the Dominican Republic. And I was talking. I literally had just said the words Dominican Republic because I was talking about the book. And she walked in. And I don't really believe in coincidences. So I was like, oh, that's weird. I wonder what that means. I was like trying to figure out what that meant. The founder of the publishing company, his wife was there. and She's an editor. And she had this program she was doing at Jirasi, a residency, where it was called like the year-long novel. That's what it's called, the year-long novel. And you write a novel in a year. And you send her like 20 pages a month. She edits the 20 pages, sends them back to you. And then by the end of the month, you know, you theoretically have whatever, close to 300 pages. She asked me if I would do it with her. And I was like, okay, I guess. I was hoping for something more direct in terms of the coincidence. But I was like, sure, I'll do this random program. And it was a year-long program. So that meant I had to write another book. Her program was you actually have to write 20 pages a month and send it to her. So I had to write another book. So I was like, okay, I have this idea for a book anyway. I wasn't really excited about it, but I had always had this idea for this three-generation book. And I knew how it would go. I knew that it would weave in and out. I knew how it would end. And I'd already written a third of it. I was like, all right, I might as well just finish that book, you know, just for something to do as a distraction, I guess, because this other one isn't going anywhere. So I did that. And then like three months in, she was like, this is really good. And she said, I really like this. When you finish it, I want to send it to Jack. Jack is the founder of the company. And I said, oh, okay. Once she said she was going to send it to Jack, I hurried up and finished it. Because I was like, I want to get this to Jack. So I finished it in like five months. It was a year-long program, but I finished it in five months. And she gave it to Jack. And Jack wanted to buy it. And so I didn't have an agent. I had left my agent at that point because she couldn't sell the other book. So Jack had to help me get an agent. So that's the agent I have now, Michael. And um, yeah, I know. Interesting.
0: I'm really fascinated by this process, too, because I did a little bit of reading about it. And I wanted to ask you, this program that you went through where you go back and forth and you send pages, it sounds like from what I could glean, and please correct me about the actual experience, it felt like the book was taking you on a journey in some way. Like, I got the sense that you were exploring writing in a new way. Is that true? What was it like for you?
1: That's a good question. I don't know if I've ever thought about that. You know, I really feel like, and it may be that it's so far removed from me at this point, and it's hard to remember, but I really feel like that book, it was almost like I was just a channel for that book, and it could have been anybody. It was good that I wrote it because I'm from New Orleans, and it was good that I wrote it because that was my whole thesis at that time that I was really into was like, this pocket of the African-American community is declining, And we need to examine why, you know, that whole thing. I think because I was inspired by that and that was important to me, it was good that I wrote that book. But I really don't feel like, I don't feel like my soul was in that book. This book that I'm working on now, I really feel like it's my story. And it's not my story in terms of the facts at all. But it just feels like it's my soul's story. That's how it feels to me. A new book that
0: you're working on today?
1: Yeah. And I don't think I ever felt like that with that book I was working on.
0: Although oh, I'm
1: not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, because with the Dominican Republic book, I felt like that was my sole story too, and You see, that didn't really go anywhere. So I don't know. Maybe I need to be more removed from it, but I don't think so. Something tells me that that's not true. I think, you know, it was good that I wrote that book. I really like it and I'm glad that I was able to tell that story. But I don't feel like when I look at it, like it was me. Like, I feel like, you know, that was a story sort of independent of me. Aside from the logistical circumstances, I feel like a lot of people could have written it. The story that I'm working on now, I don't believe anyone else can tell this story.
0: Mm. Oh, I want to ask you about that. But also, can you tell us, so your book came out in August 2017, and it became a debut novel that many authors would hope for. And I read it a few months after it came out. Our friend Carrie sent it to me and many other people were like, you should read this book. And I said, Okay. I want to know about, now that we've given the context of your life with two four-year-olds and a 14-month-old, how on earth did you finish your manuscript while pregnant, I imagine? And what was your writing practice like? And what's your writing practice like today?
1: Yeah, well, since the twins were seven months, I started getting like 15 hours of childcare. So I would have that and I would use it. I didn't use it for anything else. If I had to go to the grocery store, that would be something I would do with the kids. Anything else would be with the kids. I would turn it into an activity. But when I had my time with the childcare, I only wrote for the most part. And I think that I get obsessed with stuff. And so it wasn't hard to do that because I was obsessed with it. So it was more of a situation of like, try not to be thinking about your book while you're doing other stuff. Because every free moment I had, I wanted to be working. I would work on the weekends because my husband could have the kids more. So I would work on the weekends just because I wanted to have more time with it. I like it when it's finished. I'm a little bit impatient with it. And I think that's something I need to work on. I want to get to the finish line very, as fast <laughs> as I can, you know, as fast as I can. I like so, that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I just really like it. I just really like it. So it was never hard. And now I have more childcare than I had before. And so now every day I work for at least three hours. Has Some it changed
0: at all with the level of fatigue that you're currently experiencing? Like, Do you access yeah. different parts of your brain or do you just sit down and write?
1: I don't think it's changed. I don't think it's changed. Well, one thing that has changed, though, but this isn't about the kids, is that I think I have a lot less anxiety because before I would sit down and write, before the first book was published, and I would seriously have 50% of my brain being like, this is never going to go anywhere. Seriously, this is so silly that you're still doing this. Like, this is so crazy. You know, people must be thinking this is so crazy (laughs) that you're doing this. Seriously, 50% of my brain would be doing that while I was working. And I would have so much anxiety because, yeah, I wanted to get to the finish line, but it was also like, I was so obsessed with getting published. So I was like, I got to get this query letter out tomorrow. You know, I would set these artificial deadlines. I got to get this query letter out tomorrow. And I was just so nervous. And now I just feel way more, relaxed, way more relaxed. So that's what's changed. I mean, I feel way more relaxed and I also feel more like worthy of the time to write. Because another thing I used to do, I would like shortchange myself on childcare because I was like, oh gosh, you know, you don't have a job, job, you know? So I would give myself just a little bit of childcare. And a lot of times I would just be writing while they were napping and stuff. And now I just feel like I'm giving myself a little bit more validation and, you know, I'm allowing myself to actually own this is what I do. And I need this time. And it's not where you would think it would be at this stage, but it's a lot better than it was.
0: That's so interesting. That reminds me, I wrote a note to myself many years ago when I was blogging, and the note said on my wall, "Like take yourself seriously as a writer. And The theme comes up again now that I'm running a business. I have a little note on my wall that says, act like an entrepreneur, like act like a business owner. And it's interesting how there are times in our careers, and I'm sure even as parents, it's like, what am I doing? Like, How do I, is this real? Is this not real? And what you just said about, it's so interesting.
1: Yeah, I know. And I don't know if it ever goes away. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So tell me about this new book that you're working on, of course, if you want to talk about it, because I know also sometimes talking about the thing is not doing the thing. So I'll leave that in your court. Can you share with us?
1: Yeah, I could talk about it. It's about, I still haven't figured out how to say it concisely. It tells a story of a former slave who forms this relationship with a white woman who lives next door to her. And she learns over the course of the relationship that the white woman is part of the KKK. And It tells that story, and then it also tells a story in parallel about a woman in contemporary time, a black woman who's married to a biracial man, and her white mother-in-law moves in and gradually starts. At first, it's just weird behavior, and then it gradually develops into racially charged behavior, and she has to figure out how to handle it. So it's these two stories in parallel, and there's an unexpected connection between them. Where are you in the writing process? I think I'm going to be done in a week with the first draft. (gasps) Wow. With the first draft, with the first draft. You know what
0: I mean? (laughs) Yeah, but it's still, you put all the blocks in place and you're moving it around and it's there. There's the pieces. Yeah, I think so. I
1: mean, I've worked on it a lot. I rewrote it quite a bit. This might be the fifth time I'm rewriting this particular part. But I have a good feeling about, I actually sat down and wrote the story out you know, a summary of it, the section that I'm working on. And that's the hardest part for me is figuring out the story. So
0: I feel like now I just have to convey it. And I think I'm okay. What do you mean by that, that the hardest part is figuring out the story?
1: Oh, well, like, I always know, you know, the circumstances or the characters. I always wanted to write this book, these two stories where this woman has this white mother-in-law who comes in and they have a great relationship, but then it starts getting weird and gradually this older woman starts becoming racist. And then, you know, the story of the former slave, I always wanted to write those together, but I really, really struggle with plot. I really struggle with plot. I mean, it's hard for me to know when something is a story. So I had those circumstances and I had those characters, but I didn't know how to make it into like, this happened because this happened and then this happened, an actual chain of events that would, equal a story that someone would want to read. I really struggle with that. I struggled with it with the last book too. My husband has to help me. and I don't know what I would do if I didn't. <laughs> my <husband>.
0: I remember <laughs> hearing an interview with you something to that effect, like you would read aloud drafts to your husband and he would be like, yeah, I would turn the page or no, I wouldn't turn the page to help you with the story. I may be butchering that yeah. anecdote.
1: No, <laughs> he literally like, I finally realized with the kind of freedom I finally realized please, you know, don't spend more than a week writing anything without verifying with your husband that it's actually a story. Because I spent <laughs> years, you know, yeah, <laughs> first book, and it's like, there's not really much of a plot here. I don't think I was getting feedback early enough. You know, I just was wasting time. And of course, it's not wasted, but that's how it feels. That's so what I- <laughs> You know, so now I've just, yeah, I try to just go with him before I start any kind of major.
0: (laughs) My husband doesn't know that I kind of do the same thing. At night before we go to bed, I'll tell him some of what I'm working on. And the extent to which he falls asleep while I'm talking Uh, (laughs) clues me in to my pitch.
1: (laughs) That's perfect. I wish I could be more discreet about it because he gets he doesn't like to do it. He really doesn't like to do it. And I think it feels like a lot of pressure on him. But it's funny because I was telling him the other day I really think that it's as much his calling as it is mine. I really believe that now because I will be racking my brain for stories and we go back and forth and then it'll just come to him. He'll just be like, oh, I don't want to do this. Forget it. I don't want to do this. And he'll go and like take a shower. and Then he'll come back and be like, you know what? I had an idea. And it'll just have come to him. And I wonder if he needed to be the person to say it, if it needed to come through him. That's what I was thinking the other day.
0: Wow. Yeah. Oh, cool. I, if I thing. You know, like you give him the characters and the scenes or uh-huh. the characters and the like the setting. And you're like, but what are the moves? And he goes and he takes a shower or a walk. And he's like, well, obviously this happened.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I really needed it for this one section. One section that I wrote, he actually wasn't a part of and I'm shocked. I don't know where that came from. But see, I think that I was like really zen about that. And I did this really zen thing where I, if something wasn't working. And then I went and just like wrote something for fun. And that kind of developed into something. It might be about that, too, about like, he's not as attached to it. You know, he doesn't really care. I mean, of course he cares, but it's not his work. So,
0: Mm -hmm. yeah, I wonder if it's that, too. I don't know. So I see so many themes, like similarities or relatedness to the first novel, A Kind of Freedom, or as you said, your second novel, but the first one that the public has access to. Mm -hmm. It's just about the racial complexity and the dynamics and the nature of intergenerational relationships, and also relationships, period, like how people are related. And I learned so much through your last book. And there's one line in it, if we can go back and talk about it a little bit. There's one line in it that for people who haven't read this book, I don't want to give too much away, but also spoiler alert, we're going to talk about the book. So it's such a hopeful novel, and yet it's also got this layer of like sadness and pragmatism and reality, like my inner fairy tale wanted for like nice, tidy bows at the end, and in the book you write, he delivered so much sadness with such a casual tongue, and I felt like that captured a lot of my emotional reaction to the book of there's so much sadness in here, there's so much. Yet you lay it out with such clarity and such detail. And it's not like it's moralizing at you. It's just showing you a scene and then you get it. So what is your relationship to this novel, A Kind of Freedom, now that it's been published, and now that you can look back at it? What's changed for you?
1: Well, first, thank you so much. That was so kind and also so well said. I've heard someone say that it was a naturalistic of whatever it was conveying and that's what you're saying but I had never thought of it that way like that is a good line to describe it you (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you but it's helpful for me because you know you think about styles and so that's interesting I really appreciate that well my relationship with it I still appreciate it you know I'm really proud of it less interested in it though you know Mm. Because it's like anything, you go on to the next thing, but I'll always be proud of it. And I think we did a good job. And I mean, we, the whole team that worked on it, I think we did a good job on it. What really makes me happy is that people seem to be getting a lot from it. People who have read it seem to be getting a lot from it. You know, some people seem to be learning or some people seem to be saying, oh yeah, that resonates with my own life or my own family's life. And that's really cool. And that never really gets old. There was this period when it first came out where, you know, You're doing like the book tour and all that. It's very busy and you get a lot of emails and notes. And it was just a very busy time. I think maybe it's not that I didn't appreciate the reception. There was just a lot of examples of it. So they kind of like blend. But now for literary terms, it's old. So, you know, it's very unusual. Maybe once every two weeks or a month, somebody will write me and say something nice about it. I really cherish it more now because I don't have as many examples of it. And it's just so nice. It's So nice that this lady wrote me yesterday and was like, this was great. When's your next book coming out? Just basic like that. And I looked at where she was from because she had sent me a note on Facebook. And I think she's from, it's Florida or New York. It's one of those. I was like, gosh, if I could have told my younger self that this person from Florida or New York, this random person I don't know would be writing and talking about these characters, you know, having access to this, characters that were so privately mine in my own writing space, I would have been so happy about that. And I am so happy about that. But there are moments like that that I have all the time now where I'm like, wow, I just kind of have to basket it because that's what I wanted. And it has come to pass.
0: It's so wild. I always imagine like what the relationship is to these projects that you you know, we build up in our minds about their importance and then we deliver into the world sometimes to lots of fanfare and sometimes to silence, like dead silence and yeah. and then how we relate to them as time goes by as it does. What's next for you and this book coming out and what are you looking forward to now? I think
1: I'm really looking forward now to the same experience, you know, in terms of connecting with readers. That's what I mean by that. So just connecting with readers and I also feel like this book is a little bit deeper. It's a lot deeper. And it's a little bit more nuanced. And I think this book is going to mean more to a certain demographic. The book is for everyone. I think everyone will appreciate it. But I really feel like I'm representing Black women well with this book. And not that I wasn't with the other one, but I just feel like the kind of freedom was more like instructive than anything. Like it was more of a teaching tool. I don't think that many Black readers read it and learned from, you know what I mean? I mean, they were like, oh, I didn't know that. But it was more of a teaching tool and a resonance tool for Black readers, but a teaching tool for the country. And this is also, I'm trying to do the same thing in terms of sharing a message, but I also think it will speak to Black people on a very deep level.
0: And, you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds, and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs, and I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.